Today, we're celebrating not one, but two remarkable women, Abby Wambach and Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Many of us know Abby Wambach as a two-time gold medalist and World Cup champion member of the U.S. women's national soccer team. But she is also an author and activist who fights for equal pay and equal rights for all. She has joined in the efforts of the U.S. women's team for equal pay. The gap between the women's team and the men's team persists despite the women's winning record and enormous popularity. I have had the pleasure of knowing and admiring Abby for years, and it's been inspiring to me to see how she has been able to use her power for purpose. Brittany Packnett Cunningham is a renowned writer, educator, activist, and the founder of the social impact firm, Love & Power. Brittany's 2019 TED Talk on the revolution of confidence has been viewed more than 4 million times and has quickly become one of the most popular TED Talks of 2019. A champion of social change and racial equality, Brittany was appointed to President Obama's task force on 21st century policing and the Ferguson Commission. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We're bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. Abby Wambach and Brittany Packnett Cunningham both live by the idea that no one is equal until everyone is equal. They know that the struggle for rights must be a struggle for the rights of all people, and that as human beings, our lives and fates are intertwined. This episode features Abby and Brittany in conversation with Lauren Leader, the co-founder and CEO of All In Together, an organization that empowers voting age women to participate fully in America's civic and political life. Their discussion is part of All In Together's recent celebration of 100 years of women's suffrage. Listen and learn why Abby Wambach and Brittany Packnett Cunningham are some of Seneca's 100 women to hear. And now we turn to the future and a conversation with two of the most visionary, amazing women I know. It is my great pleasure to moderate our conversation with Olympic gold medal winning soccer superstar, activist, best-selling author, legendary Barnard graduation speaker, my alma mater, by the way, and new owner of Angel City, Abby Wambach. And joining her in this conversation, the brilliant author, founder, activist, educator, Brittany Packnett Cunningham, founder of maybe the best named organization ever, Love and Power. Welcome, ladies. It's great to have you. Great to be here. So great to be here, Lauren. Thanks for having us. So we're here celebrating the centenary of women's suffrage, a hugely important milestone in the history of women's rights. And yet the celebration is tempered because women of color did not get the right to vote until this very day, actually August 6th, 1965, in the passage of the Voting Rights Act. And of course, even today, access to the polls, uh, the full access to voting rights remain a challenge. So how do you think about the importance of this 100th anniversary given that it was incomplete, that it remains incomplete. You know, we are sitting in the middle of what we call in our tradition Black August, that there have been 
many critical and impactful moments in Black history that have all centered in this month. We've had the birth of people like Fred Hampton and Marcus Garvey, some of our most important leaders. We have um, some real tragedies that we've seen, especially um, in rebellions against the carceral state and mass incarceration. And as you've already said, we have important anniversaries like the passage of the Voting Rights Act. And of course, we're standing in the shadow of the passing of uh, Congressman John Lewis and C.T. Vivian, people who were critical in ensuring that this right to vote was more universal than it was in 1920. And I find myself fired up and ready to go, as is the chant, as is the phrase, this Black August, because as you've already said, there is so much more work to do to secure the franchise and the right to vote for every single person who walks in our streets and who who live next to us, um, and working to make sure that people experience their right to vote as something that engages them and doesn't push them out, and that they experience the right to vote as the beginning of their civic process and not the end. That is where we have to go from here. And that's what's really on my mind, not just today, but during Black August. Perfect. I mean, I can't add more to that. All I'll say is that I was, you know, it was 15 years. 1965 was 15 years before I was born. Hmm. And what that means to me is um, there are still women, Black women in this country, in this in, in our, our current world right now that was experienced and that did experience the, the uh, inability to vote. So for me, a lot of people, white people especially, they, they think, oh, well, there's nothing I can do. So why, why even go to the polls? Why even vote? And I think it's just really important to understand that this has actually been happening in our lifetime. Yeah. And so the, 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 the need is not only there, but it's, it's possible because things have changed in our lifetime. Um, you know, we can't celebrate progress unless every, if we're leaving people behind, we are not free unless everybody is free. And that's why it's so important for me that intersectionality is not just a part of a conversation we're having around um, voting and creating policy, but it's actually uh, the, 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 the action that we're taking in order to achieve the, the progress that we're hoping to achieve. And we want, you know, they say progress is slow, um, but I want it to be fast. And, you know, wherever Brittany goes, I'm going to follow her because she says very smart things and she is. That's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> and look, I mean, actually, like Abby, you're mentioning intersectionality is perfect because it's actually, I think, such a critical part of this conversation. I mean, you know, the fight for women's, gen, you know, for gender equity has, there's always been this undercurrent of who's been left out, right? That Black women were left out 100 years ago, that, you know, even in the 60s and 70s, the you know, second wave feminists left out LGBT women intentionally because it didn't fit uh, the political agenda. You know, how do we make sure, because this panel is about the future, like we cannot do that. You know, none of us are free unless all of us are free. None of us are equal unless all of us are equal. How do we make sure, Brittany, that these next hundred years, that we're not constantly sacrificing, you know, one uh, set of uh, fights for equality for another? Because that, that has been our history. So the first thing we do is we we deal honestly in reality. So as we're having this conversation about voting rights, about the franchise, 
multiple things are true about this moment, not about the 60s, but about this moment. What yeah. is true is that the Voting Rights Act, as it was passed then, has been gutted since by the Supreme Court in 2013. So uh, it, what happens in particular is that a number of the Southern states and other states with a legacy of discrimination have been given more freedom to continue that discrimination in more insidious ways. We see things, um, we see things like gerrymandering, we see things like the poll, the closing of polling places. We see things like false mailers being uh, being sent out to people telling them that they've been purged from the voting rolls. We've yeah. seen people actually be purged from the voting rolls. So that is happening right now. And the law that was passed all those years ago to prevent those things has been stripped of its ability to do so in so many ways. What is also happening is that indigenous women are far too often, indigenous people are far too often being pushed out of this process because we have a system that does not properly recognize the sovereignty of tribal governments, tribal addresses, and the access that rural folks need to these systems, right? What we also know is that low-income folks are not experiencing voting rights equally. That if voting is, if election day is not a national holiday and you are an hourly worker or you need to provide yeah. childcare or elder care or you do not have transportation, you do not have equal access to the ballot box no matter what the law says on paper. And lastly, what we know to be fundamentally true is that millions of people have been, have had the right to vote stolen from them because they are formerly incarcerated people. And that even as they've returned to society, they have not been afforded the very rights and privileges that they should be after having paid what the carceral state calls their debt, right? Now, that is a different conversation. But ultimately, if that is the system as it stands, when, the, when that last day happens, you should have your access to the ballot box restored no matter where you are. So we have to deal in the current reality and realize that to Abby's point about intersectionality, if none of us are none of us are free until all of us are free, which means that none of us are fully free with our access to the ballot box. If everyone I just listed and more do not have that access. The second thing that we do, though, is we realize that other people's fight is our fight. So Aboriginal activist Lilla Watson said, that if you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come here because you know our fates are bound up with one another's, then let us work together. I have to care just as much about indigenous rights, about the rights of disabled people, about black trans women, about queer women. I have to care just as much about their fate as I do my own, not just because I want to be a good person, not just because I want Jesus to let me in the pearly gates, but because materially, if I allow things to happen to them in their name, it will not be long before somebody comes for my rights in the very same way. Yeah. So in a very literal sense, fighting for those things provides security for all of us, because when the most marginalized among us are free, we actually all materially benefit from the security, the protections and the safety that they receive. Do I say preach? <laughs> that question was answered. I think that question was answered. I mean, Abby, it is so interesting, Abby, because like we're in this moment too where you're seeing athletes and artists and folks across sort of every corner of American society realize that they have not only the platform, but a, a sort of a deep personal moral obligation to speak up. And there has at the same time been this push to like keep athletes out of politics, uh, to tell them that that's not what people want. You're an entertainer, you know, just go play, right? You have been linking your 
sport and your activism from the beginning and inspired so many other athletes in soccer and beyond and artists as well to do that. So how do you think about that? Because it does feel like there is this sort of, there is this kind of mass movement of folks realizing that whatever platform or power you have, whether you're a famous Abby Wambach or Brittany Packnett, or you're, you know, the 17 year old girl in Kentucky who organizes the Black Lives Matter protest starting in your high school and, you know, gets tons of thousands of people to come. It does feel like this moment that people are kind of tapping into their own power as activists, but, but how do you think about that? And how, how do we keep, how do you keep pushing? Well, you know, sports has this really unique way of being able to cross over these gender lines and women's sports. And when we're really talking about women's soccer, um, you know, women's soccer has this unique ability to bring in fans from every kind of uh, walk of life, men, women, black, brown. And I mean, the reason why is because our women's national team wins um, as opposed to our men's national team. And that's not a slight, that's just a fact. And people like to follow winners. Our women's national team earns more money for the United States Soccer Federation than our men's national team and are paid far less, right? So for me, thinking about it globally, if this is happening in uh, in a bubble of the women's national team, the women's national soccer team, where we are popular, we do get endorsements, uh, the players do get paid, but just not nearly as much as the men. Then for me, when I retired, I realized, oh, I mean, it was a, it was a terrible realization that I had to actually recreate myself. I actually had to find a new career because I didn't earn the same amount as Peyton Manning during my career. Um, that was a forced reality on me. And if this was happening to me, I realized this is happening to every woman everywhere, yeah. so, especially with sports, because men can see and understand the language of sport maybe better than in other in under other industries. But it's like a shocking realization, Abby, when you start to like put your head around the fact that even when you're better, right, that being better isn't even the solve to the gender bias. Exactly. And the racial bias that you still face, right? It doesn't matter how good you are. Well, and it, hasn't, and it hasn't mattered how much money, because everybody, that's been the biggest argument, right? Since yeah. the beginning of time. Well, the women don't earn as much as the men. So of course they're not gonna get paid the same. Well, that's no longer true. Since 2015 or 16, our women's national team has out earned for US soccer, our men's national team. That's why they've taken ahead and gone forward with this lawsuit. Um, for me though, it is blatant sexism to, like, to its core. Uh, and for a long time, I had to actually figure out what that meant for me because I was in the system that was yeah. oppressing me and I was, trying to navigate those waters. At first, um, you know, you are asking yourself questions. Well, I'm just going to be grateful for what I got because, yeah. you know, 10 years ago, they didn't give it to me that they didn't give them anything. And I'm, I'm actually earning a paycheck, uh, in 10 years, where will we be? And so for me, it's about not just talking about the inequalities. It's about creating the policy. It's about creating the, the, the standard, not, you know, not just in sport, but in every walk of life, in every industry, in every city, in every government. And you have to figure out ways to recreate what that might and could look like. Um, you know, I'm and it's a, and it's risky. It's inherently risky. And, you know, like Brittany, I mean, I feel like 
you know, part of why we started all in together was because in 2014, when we looked around, you know, there was this sort of sense among women of my generation and younger that like, why do we need to fight anymore? You know, why is this not just solved? And there was this sort of passiveness about political participation. I think particularly during the Obama years, the sense among younger liberals, like we're good, Obama's in office, what do we need to do this for? You know, and what we saw was this just sort of apathy, but also this sense of like, not, not, uh, and, and I say this about white women, particularly like not appreciating that, like, you can't make progress if you're not willing to take a risk. And it sometimes means putting your own, putting yourself on the line in like very real ways. I mean, you, you, as you were saying, Abby, like you're both dependent on the system that you're trying to upend and change. Right. And also trying to, you know, rebel inside a broken system that you still need to be a part of in order to be make, make a living. Black women, I think, have always understood this. Like, there was never a question for Black women that you are taking risk, that you're putting your life and your body and yourself on the line to fight for change. It feels like this year that maybe there's some shift in understanding there that we saw so many more white women showing up to support Black Lives Matter, you know, coming out to, you know, fight systemic institutional racism. But I don't know, like... What do we need to understand about the future? Like, if we really want to make the progress we want to make, if we want to really, you know, upend these last sexist and racist institutions, wherever they apply, like, what do we need to know and do to do that right? So it was the Cumbahee River Collective, a a group of Black feminists who came together and they said that they wanted to expand on the feminist idea that the personal is political, right? And we have to understand that, yes, no matter how uncomfortable it is, the personal is indeed political. From how we wear our hair to the chairs we sit in to the food we buy, literally every sector of our lives is determined by political choices and political will. Not just ours, but the systems that guide and govern us, right? So if the personal is political, what Cumbahee essentially came along and said was, not only is the personal political, but community is political. And in community, yes, we can see and witness the injustice but in community, we can also face them together and solve them unequivocally. So what I think the future really has to look like is that understanding and that orientation toward community. If we think just over the last six years, because August is also the month that we found um, the Ferguson uprising happening, and that was a movement and a moment in time of which I was a very proud member, along with thousands, like thousands of people whose names folks may never know, but who sacrificed everything to ready America for this moment, right? Mm -hmm. Because it was Ferguson and Baltimore and Cleveland and Florida and LA that taught the country how, that reminded rather the country of its obligation to democracy and how to take a risk. Um, And so in standing up in in those six years ago, between then and now, we've seen the conversation shift. We've seen to your point, a lot of women of color hold white women accountable and say, you're not just going to show up for the Women's March and not show up when Sandra Bland or Breonna Taylor are murdered, right? We've seen trans women say, you are not going to define womanhood solely by reproductive organs and not include the rest of us, right? We have seen immigrant women say, you are not going to scream feminism with one hand and then undervalue and underpay us uh, on the other hand because those two things cannot operate together. 
it is in community that we will actually change this. And that has to be the very, very clear focus of the future. I think that you're right, that, that it is not my blackness or my womanhood that inherently are a risk. But unfortunately, in this country, um, I am faced with risk because of them. And so, uh, yeah, there there is a world in which black women have always known that risk. We have never had the privilege to turn that off or turn away from it. Um, and still, I'm glad to see many more people acknowledging the leadership of black women, of Latinas, of indigenous women, of Asian American Pacific Islander women who have been radical in their imagination, radical in their determination, and who got everybody ready to take on the fight right now. Seneca's 100 Women to Cure will be back after a short break. So, Abby, you know, we've been we there's such a temptation to talk about, you know, this election here, 2020 being so critical, you know, that this is this critical election year. And obviously we have there's a record number of women running for office in this cycle, a record number of black women. We will have a woman uh, vice president, vice presidential nominee. Um, There is obviously have been a huge groundswell in the last few years of younger women also kind of coming in, getting in touch with their political power and their ability to shift the direction of the country. But how do we keep it going? You know, we talk a lot about, you know, women's empowerment, but how do we make sure that this is not just about any one election or any one president or any one moment or any one fight, but that women understand that we own, uh, the major- we are the majority of, the Amer- of this country, and that we must hold our government accountable to our interests always, not just in any one election. So you talk to thousands and thousands of women around the country. You've been so motivational and inspirational to so many of them. Like, how do we keep this going? How do we make this a lifetime and beyond to the next lifetimes and their children and grandchildren? I think that this is a really important question because I think that the women's rights movement there can feel a sense of fatigue, right? People can get tired of talking about all the politics. Well, here's the thing, the activists, myself, Brittany, folks like you, Lauren, we are never going to tire because we have dedicated our life to this work. And it is our job, right, to circle and and, and get everybody on board. But the thing that I learned the most about playing on our women's national team is this concept of unity. And it is the only reason why our women's national team has secured any of the contracts that they've been able to secure over the generations of the team. And the way that they were able to do that is that they were together. They were one unit, one breath. That doesn't mean they always agreed on everything. But what they agreed upon was this idea of a better future. And what they've also agreed upon is that they were going to fight tooth and nail forever until they became equal. And for me, that is what we have to remind ourselves with because it's it, for, the, for the average person who's watching this, you might think it's too big. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I don't know what to do. I'm not sure how to even like make my vote or make my independent individual self matter, but find the people around you. Get talking about some of the stuff that's important to you, that matters to you, that, that, that draws you into your own personal purpose. And when you start collecting people, then you find your folks that you're gonna be able to do life with. And that, and that group 
I call it a wolf pack. You know, I'm not trying to plug my, my book here, but the truth is, is if you have people around you that are going to do life with you, you can actually get stuff done. Right. And and it might not necessarily be uh, in politics. It might be in your, in, in your school, your kid's school. It might be for your kid's soccer team. Like you have to have your people around you to do life with in order to get these bigger things done and leave it up to Brittany and myself to collect the masses, right? All you need to worry about is getting in touch with the people, your next door neighbor, talk about this stuff, get, yeah. get it into the, into the mindsets of what you want for your future because we get to create it if we choose it and if we go out and be active in it and vote. And it's such a, I'm so glad you said that, you know, that you can have unity even with disagreement. We are not going to all agree. Women are as diverse as this nation. We do not all agree. We have vastly different perspectives on an endless number of issues, but that doesn't mean that we can't find the right common ground to fight for each other. My vision is that there are no more firsts, Mm. that there are only many's, Mm. that we find ourselves surrounded by a world that reflects all of us, by a democracy that lives up to its ideals as flawed as they were at the founding and exceeds them and expands them and does them better. This has been one of the great honors and privileges of my life. And I am so grateful to both of you. And I know everybody who is listening joins me in my deep abiding thanks and appreciation to you both. Thank you both so much for being here. On to the next 100. What an important conversation. Brittany, Abby, and Lauren remind us that we are all one and that there is no equality unless there is equality for all. As they've told us, equality must exist everywhere. Equal access to voting, equal justice, and equal pay. The 19th Amendment marks an important moment on a long journey, a journey we are still on. The last hundred years have seen progress, but the ultimate destination of true equality is still ahead. And that can be reached only when all of us have the opportunity to fully participate in our democracy. Tune in tomorrow to learn who our next featured woman will be and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 women to hear. For more great listens from Seneca Women, check out our other podcasts. Every weekday, join us for a brief take on all the good that's happening in the world on Seneca's Here's Something Good. And every Thursday, listen to inspiring and shared learnings from legendary women entrepreneurs on Made by Women. If you want to support organizations making a difference for women and girls, you can donate to the Women's Economic Future Fund. Learn more on our website at SenecaWomen.com. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Special thanks to our iHeart producers, supervising producer Molly Socha and supervising sound producer Matt Stillo. If you like what you heard on the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. We hope you'll join us for our next episode of 100 Women to Hear, where we can all listen, learn, and get inspired. Have a great day.